Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, Saul here. Welcome back to another show. And before we get into our guests, just want to announce a really big announcement. Really proud to announce the launch of the My Personal Football Coach virtual conference. I've, uh, you know, I've brought together some of the best player developers in world football to all come and present at this unique conference, which you can download now and keep forever. Completely downloadable and watchable. Watch at your own uh, pace. Uh, give you a taste of some of the guests that come on the show. Like I said, some of the people we've had on the show before. These are the best player developers in world football. Chris Ramsey, uh, Lewis go to head of foundation phase at Arsenal Chris van der Hagen um, head of the Belgium FA's education program Paul McGuinness ex-Man United Phil Sheed uh, Middlesbrough Middlesbrough's head of coaching Timo Jankowski uh, Fiji FA technical director Tom Bayer earlier specialist Jonathan Hunter Barrett Wolverhampton Wanderers Academy Manager, Romeo Jozak, ex-Croatian and uh, Dynamo Zagreb uh, TD, uh, Joop Ustavel, head of uh, PSV's foundation phase, Richard Brook, head of uh, head of coaching for uh, Birmingham City's foundation phase, Tim Bradbury, US soccer coach educator, myself and Glenn Hicks as well, who's ex-Premier League Academy coach and also head of player and coach development, my personal football coach. This, look, I'm really, this is, look, in terms of lineups, these are like the Harlem Globetrotters of um, player developers here. So this is unbelievable, a great opportunity for you guys to experience some hints and tips and insight from these world-class uh, practitioners. And also, look, I'm proud to give you guys a unique um, discount, a 20% discount unique to you guys only on the podcast listeners. Just use the um, discount code PODCASTVC. That's podcast V for virtual, C for conference. That gives you 20% off. That is unique for you guys only. And go and experience this uh, fantastic opportunity, this fantastic, unique experience with some of these best player developers around. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's been in the works for a long time and I'm really, pr- really uh, proud how that's turned out. And like I said, there's nothing like it out there in the world. And these guys are uh, really fortunate these guys all agreed to come on and share the knowledge view. But now back to the show. Um, a bit of a round table one this week. Um, got like uh, Douglas Moff who's one of the world leaders in teaching and learning and particularly does a lot of work in sport and coaching as well. Uh, lucky that he agreed to come on the show. A man much in demand, works a lot with federations and sporting organisations around the world. Uh, Tim Bradbury, US soccer coach educator, a really big mentor to me as well, world-class coach developer and player developer. And also Glenn Hicks, um, who's, uh, I worked with Tottenham for many years, ex-Premier League Academy coach and um, uh, head of player and coach development, my personal football coach. It's just a bit of a round table, really. We get dug in and we ask him a bit of questions, you know, we get into him and see, you know, what about best practice and teaching and learning within a coaching environment. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a coach, you're into coaching, you want to you improve yourself, you're a reflective practitioner, this one is a must. Like I said, this guy is world class. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Okay, guys, welcome back to another show. This week we've got a very special show. Uh, we've got lots of different guests on. We've got uh, first one introduced Tim Bradbury, who's a coach educator, uh, US soccer, obviously a big influence in my career as well, one of my big mentors. Glenn Hicks, also a good friend of mine, also co podcast host of the Coaching Family Podcast, Premier League Academy coach and top coach. And obviously, big special guest here, Douglas Moff, who's a published author, teacher, and coaching specialist. And um, yeah, one of the best in the world at what he does. So really privileged 
he could join us here and hopefully we could try and you know you know squeeze out as much for this uh good gold content and knowledge and as much we can get about about coaching from you in this short period of time so welcome everybody welcome doug particularly thanks for having me excited for the conversation just quickly doug how did you how did you your 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 backgrounds in teaching but how, how did how did you how did this how did you merge into teaching and football or soccer as well? Where, where did that come from? The you know your big influence in both spheres now. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of a dream come true, honestly. Uh, I grew up playing the game. Uh, I mentioned it in the front cover of the book that I was the worst footballer in the history of my uh, my university. Um, but I was also a soccer dad, and it's been a big part of my life with my with my kids. And at some point, having written books about teaching, some folks from U.S. soccer reached out, you know, to their uh, I was really humbled and flattered. And they said, you know, read your book. We've, think, we've been thinking a lot about uh, about coaching and teaching. Would you be interested in doing a workshop with us, talking to us a little bit about how we could improve the quality of teaching on the field? I said, yes. Uh, the first workshops I did were really terrible. <laughs> there, just, there were a lot of questions I hadn't thought about. There, I thought a lot, a lot about the similarities, but I think there were a lot of differences that I hadn't really thought about. Uh, and so I kind of ended up going on this, you know, five or eight year journey to sort of try to answer the questions that they were asking me a little bit better. And that um, sort of resulted in the book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. So, Wow. And so, so The Coach's Guide to Teaching, yes, it's, a, it's an amazing book. Just tell us a bit then, what is, what is the difference? Or is there a difference between coaching and teaching? And where's, where's, what is that? What are those two roles lies? How do you differentiate those two? Yeah, well, I, I do think that coaching is a form of teaching. You know, I think there are things about coaching that are... Um, radically, radically different from teaching. You know, I think one of the things I'm just starting to think about is, you know, what, what is, what does game day look like? And, uh, been working with some coaches to think about if you wanted to optimize learning at a halftime talk, what would you do? You know, uh, but of course, sometimes at the halftime talk, you don't want to optimize learning. You want to optimize winning. And so there's some differences there. I think, but I think that maybe the key differences that I started thinking about were, uh, you know, Football is a problem-solving game. We try to teach students to solve, to do be problem solvers in the classroom, but it's a different endeavor, right? When you're trying to teach a football team to problem solve, it's 11 players solving a problem together in a coordinated fashion, as opposed to one person solving a maths problem on their own. And they have to, which, you know, that doesn't really happen in the classroom. And they often have to solve it at speed. Often it speeds faster than they can think consciously. And so that, you know, that's a pretty big difference as well. Um, and so uh, so maybe those are some of the sort of at least differences that I started out thinking about. Do you think there's, well, why do you think there is a difference? Or do you think there's a difference in the approach in people who think teaching uh, from a teacher's perspective in coaching football and maybe a skill acquisition approach to coaching football do you think there's differences there and is there or why or what's your thoughts on that yeah well I think you teach so I mean I think it's one of the challenges of teaching in the game which is there are so many different things that we're trying to teach and they're also so skill acquisition is certainly part of it right? we, we need to teach people to master skills and master them to the point of automaticity so they can be thinking about other things but in addition to skill acquisition then you know then there's there's problem solving and background knowledge and um you know, I have to understand the game model and be able to execute it uh, and read cues that, uh, about what the people are doing around me. Uh, and so, you know, we're teaching both, we're teaching perception, we're teaching uh, tactical knowledge, we're teaching problem solving, we're teaching skill acquisition. 
And so I, I always, I mean, I guess I feel like one of the things that's relevant about that is you often hear people who are very philosophical about what the right way to teach is. And I'm just not sure that with, you know, with a portfolio that's that broad and that complex that you could really say like there's one right way to teach always. Uh, you know, um, it's hard to imagine that we teach all of those things the same. Now, look, we, we live in a world of binary opposites and, you know, that's the relationship given. What's your thoughts on this, you know, the big debate, when, which comes from a lot of skill acquisition experts saying that everything should be done in a game scenario. They should, everything, nothing should be done unopposed and shouldn't build technique in those environments. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you're hitting me with the, with the, the big questions right, right away. Um, usually, get, get, just get, I was going to get straight to it. <laughs> usually I, I let Bradbury go first on questions like that. Cause so he can really, he can really get himself into trouble, but I, yeah. I see it's, it's mine on this one. Um, yeah. So I, I, I want, um, generally speaking, I think opposition is good, but I think this is a classic case of, um, is it always optimal? Are there cases where unopposed can be valuable? Yeah, I think there are. And maybe, um, you know, I read about this briefly. I would probably want to spend most of my time in training sessions doing opposed work. But I sort of see, um, I think there are consistent patterns that groups execute during a game that are a lot like skill acquisition. It's sort of like group skill acquisition, which is I'm really familiar with the pattern of ball into the feet of a, of a striker who's checking back and then uh, we're going to play back and through out of that. And in some ways, I think I can, I can hope to familiarize. You know, oftentimes, my team would have to make that decision and execute that as fast as or faster than they could have a conscious thought. And so I'd want them to have a really intuitive sense for um, what the rhythm and what the patterns of that feel like and what the movements are. And I think that you can accomplish some of that in an unopposed setting. It's, is it sufficient to prepare you to go out in a game? Definitely not. But is it a useful setting in which to um, build intuitive, fast understanding of the core concept that you're trying to teach? I think so. And, I, you know, uh, I could be wrong in that, you know, but I also, you know, when I see footage of, you know, Pep Guardiola and, uh, you know, coaches like that training there, they use that tool. So, um, so uh, I guess I would describe it as uh, helpful, some possibly necessary, probably not sufficient. Yeah, I mean, listen, as you probably know, and Tim testified, Glenn, myself, I mean, you know, we've, we've worked at some of the best academies in Europe, and I, you'll, you'll find it's a mixed approach every time, isn't it? You find, you know, lots, everyone wants to work in game and opposed, but everyone uh, will work unopposed as well. My thing for just I have, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try and quote one of your earlier works. You talked about, you know, if, if you're always learning in chaos, that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, that's a problem. If you're always in a chaotic moment, and that's all, then yours basically, then you're basically just um, always going to base, you're basically reinforcing failure almost. I remember this when you, you were talking about one of this, and that's always a danger, isn't it? So I had this conversation because I consult at Arsenal in the academy. I was there last night with some of the academy coaches, and we we're having this discussion about, you know, how do you really develop, you know, new techniques in a game situation because it's so difficult, because it's so chaotic. So you need to can't, you know, to break it down, slow it down a bit to introduce players or let players explore the ball and how it relates to, like I say, different movements. So if you're always in that chaotic environment, it's really difficult for players to, you know, come above that and do that. And maybe you're just in, in reinforced in, in failure. I mean, what's, what's, yeah. your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just throw a couple of vocabulary, the terms of this that I think are useful from cognitive science. 
One of them is deliberate difficulty, which is, I, th I think one of the things that a cognitive scientist would argue is that people learn more when they, uh, people remember what they learn when they engage in deliberate difficulty. In other words, we want the learning setting to be challenging, but we also, and that helps to encode what we're doing in long-term memory. But uh, I also need it, I also in most cases want the, the deliberate difficulty to end in success for the learning to happen. In other words, it, it should be challenging, but, but provide a successful outcome. If I don't do it right, ultimately I don't actually learn that much. And so difficulty and chaos might be slightly different in that setting where, you know, it might be, mm. I could set up an environment where there's, there's challenge and there's difficulty and the challenge phases in. And as I get better, it gets a little bit more challenging. And as I struggle, it gets a little bit less challenging so that I'm consistently facing difficulty that prepares me for the game, but I'm also successful. Whereas chaos may or may not ensure that. I think maybe a second point I would make is just, the, I, I think it's important to think about the difference between performance and learning. You know, and this gets to the idea of retrieval practice. And, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges for coaches, maybe one of the biggest oversights is um, just because we've seen players do something doesn't mean they can do it. And, you know, most of what we've, most of what you and I and uh, Glenn, certainly Tim, have, uh, have learned in their life, they've, uh, they've forgotten, you know, like, uh, and, you know, cognitive science is really clear that things need to, that in order to be able to have something encoded in long-term memory, to, to be able to use it in a complex environment, I have to do it and then come back to it and begin to forget it and then come back to it again and then begin to forget it and come back to it again. And so pace and frequency and spacing with which ideas come back into my working memory is really important because without those things, I'll forget them. And chaos is really good at replicating the complexity of the game, but it's not always as good at ensuring that things that I can achieve retrieval practice in the way that I want to. So I think that's maybe a second thing that I'd be thinking about. And maybe the third principle I'd be thinking about and just sort of like wrestling with this word chaos and how much chaos do I want in my training is something called the guidance fading effect, which just reminds us that novices and experts learn differently. And real complexity and real chaos is actually can be very powerful for an expert to learn in. Experts looking at a complex visual field, they're watching the game, are, are learning more and processing more from it than novices. And so I think what a cognitive scientist would say is the more novice you are, either as a player generally or at a concept it's the first time we've learned the three, five, two, you know, some, then the more I want to be a little bit more directive, be structured, be a little bit more predictable because the more novice I am, the less I'm able to glean from a really, really complex environment. And the more expert we are, the more I, I probably am able to do that. And especially if I'm preparing you for a complex performance environment, I would probably want that. And so the, I think this goes back to like, what is the right answer? There is no one right answer. It probably depends on, uh, on my learners. And I, but I would want to be careful about saying, oh, well, you know, I saw, um, you know, I saw the most elite team. I saw Barcelona doing this. And so that means yeah. that it's probably appropriate for 10-year-olds. No, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm dominating the mic here. I'll bring in other guys in a minute just because um, I've got here. I'm just, I want to as well, for example, so I'll give you a couple of things there. So, for example, if I'm, I work a lot of professional footballers, you know, Premier League players, and so what we find is that it helps them to come out of the chaotic environment to refine a technique, make sure they don't have, maybe a technique, maybe they're not that great on, they're not, they're not elite level, then take it back into the, 
into those team environments and also i think there's also there's a myth around people saying oh maybe novice players they don't need the individual technical work because they're just novices they just need to play and have fun where actually it's really important um, but just to other things quickly, was, 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 I want to ask you um, specifically about two things you talked about there when you talked about challenging environments. So I'd, I'd contest anyone to say you could, an unopposed environment couldn't be challenging, for example. I'd say, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely rubbish. Number two, I'd say more importantly and even more passionately, said you can even make it contextual as well. And that's, that's why we, I think there's a lot of breakdown between some skill acquisition experts who maybe don't have experience on the grass. And my, some, some people like me work on the grass every day and with those elite players who we're where things we do, we try and break the game down into microcosmic examples and then really give that context, whether it is about, you know, 1v1 on the edge of the box and beating a player and delivering end product. And, it's, and that's what I'd say. It's the art of the coach to, one, bring challenge and two, bring context to that. Because like I said, it's, if it's got no context, it's useless. But I think that's where some people break down. The argument sometimes gets confusing. They, people can't understand that you can actually bring context to an unopposed environment. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's spot on. And um, maybe I'll say one more thing and then I'm, I'm in danger of monopolizing the, the microphone. No, too, so we should, we, should hear, we should hear from Tim and Glenn. No, no but you're, you're the star, but I'm going to bring them in and they can no. harass you after me. It's okay. <laughs> but I think that one, I mean, I think one other, one other piece of research that I find really fascinating is, uh, is Herbert Simon's research on, on chunking. Uh, and this is just the idea that like, that one of the differences between an expert and a novice is how much they're able to, to see in process at any given time. So you've, you might've read about this, like Herbert Simon did this really fascinating research with chess players where he took positions, he, he took a, a chess match or the position of pieces in, a, in the middle of a chess match and he showed them to expert and novice chess players very briefly for a couple of seconds, cover them up and ask them to try and recreate where all the, all the pieces were on the board. And the experts were able to, you know, basically recreate almost the entire board and novices were able to only place, you know, four or five pieces. Uh, and so then, you know, there's a lot of questions about this. Like what, you know, what does this tell us about expertise? Maybe it's that people are experts because they perceive so much more uh, and that's why they became experts. But then Simon did this fascinating thing where he, um, he then reshuffled the pieces on the board and instead of setting them up from a context that would be typical from a chess game, he just placed them randomly on the board. And he showed them to the expert and the novice chess players again and asked them to recreate where the pieces were. And in this case, the advantage of expertise disappeared. Both experts and novices were only able to place about four or five you know, pieces on, on the board. And what Simon concluded was that when that experts see what, what novices see as individual pieces, experts see as a chunk of information. And so like, I'm a relative football novice. And when I look at the game, I might look at the position of the outside back and the position of the center back and then the position of the other center back and be processing where they are individually. But you as an expert would see a back four, right? A shape to a back four. And that would be one chunk of information to you. And so when you have like a piece of knowledge, a picture of the game, and maybe even a name that you can put on it, um, then you can, it helps you to perceive a more complex visual field. And so I think one of the other things you were talking about there is like breaking things down into component chunks. And I think when we do that, sometimes when we simplify things and make them legible to people and, and have them have a really clear picture of it, be able to put a name on that picture. What do we mean when we're talking about between the lines? What do we mean when we talk about half spaces? What is the channel exactly? And how well do I, you know, um, 
then we help people to see the game more broadly and actually process complexity. So, um, so again, I think this gets to the idea that like really there's, I don't think one only right way that would want to teach all the complex things that we're asking football players to do, that there are times when there are times for real complexity and there are times for um, more simplicity. And um, I'd love to like, <laughs> love to hear what Tim or Glenn think about that as well. I'm sure they have well, just, I mean, just, I mean, I just think it's important to tell you though, from a teaching and learning perspective though, I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking, you know, the binary world doesn't work here because I, I was a teacher for five years and that's why it works for me. I can compute it. it, it it's relatable to me in terms of breaking things down and giving it to the, to the children. I mean, that's, you know, that's very much a teaching and learning area. So I just think, you know, that's, you know, specific for that, right? And, you know, Dan, I love Dan Abraham's work, the, uh, the psychologist. You know, he just said, he always reminds me, he says, the psychosocial is always with us. I think one of the things that you do when you break something down and help somebody conceptualize a core idea that they can then apply elsewhere is you make them feel successful and capable of understanding the game. And that's motivating. You know, uh, if you were thrown constantly into a complex environment that you, that you felt like was overwhelming to you, some people might thrive in that environment. But I think, particularly young player, you know, understanding is pleasurable. <laughs> it's pleasurable unless we like to understand things. We're drawn to it, and so when I can break things down to a point where players can understand what they're trying to do, often from simple fundamentals, and then over time they begin to understand them with more complexity. Oftentimes I can just make them feel more faith in the learning process. And I, I think that's also relevant. Interesting. Tim, James, I can bring open this up to you guys. Sorry, I've been dominating this a uh, little bit. Anyone? So it's all good, but Glenn, go ahead. Go on, Glenn. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Just a couple of things on a personal from a football point of view is I've got this thing I'm wrestling with at the minute and, you know, on, on a deeper level and in terms of like, so if you just look at the pitch from the back end of the pitch with a goalkeeper to the very, very top end, I'm trying to really coach at the top end of the pitch and, and, and dig deep into like the fast thinkers. And I've got this thing in my mind about a lot of stuff you said there about players collecting information and, 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 and how they perceive things and perception. But I've got this thing in my mind called instinctive, but, but the word there's think in there. So I N S and then think tiv. And ultimately that's what I'm trying to get the players to be. So there was a great quote recently of the young uh, Barcelona player, Pedri. He was asked how he'd done something and he couldn't recall it. He said, I don't know. I'm going to have to watch the video back and I'll let you know. And, and there was a couple of things I took from that is he's so immersed in the moment, like literally so in the game that he probably can't recollect it with the adrenaline and everything going, but he definitely knows how to do it. I'm sure when he watches it back, he'll have the most deep knowledge from his 10 or 15 years at Barcelona where it's, it is instinctive. It is intuitive. All the words you said there, I think that's the key where it's just intuition, instinct, to the point where he probably takes for granted what he's doing. And that maybe comes um, from the information. So the amount of experiences that he's had over and over again, like all the different pictures that actually he's got such a library of these pictures that the decision making with a pass does become instinctive. And it's fascinating to hear him almost dismiss it, though, the very, very elite end, because... There was that argument the other day, wasn't it? Not an argument, discussion with Gary Lineker and about can you coach goal scorers? And Gary Lineker was one of the best English goal scorers, actually disagreed completely and said, I think you can. And I think in terms of the technique and the movements, maybe you can. Maybe the stuff in terms of temperament, so to have the nerve of a Gary Lineker to hold your nerve in the last minute or to have 
the, the steely like you know temperament of a Messi in the last minute of a World Cup final. Maybe that's the stuff we can't coach. But a lot of it is fascinating. We said that about the chaos and stuff. You know, all of these environments, I think, add to to the very very unpredictable nature of football. I think it's important about balance and kind of connecting the whole lots and look. And I'm actually looking forward to watch this back because I'm trying to take as much as I can. But I am looking forward to go back and listen to it again as well. So hopefully made a little bit of sense there. It's fascinating to listen to it from a teaching perspective. Yeah, I think it's one of the most fascinating questions about learning that you got, particularly in the football context that you asked, which is what is instinct? I think it's a lot of things, but I think that one thing that it is, is um, the game demands that we take action faster mm-hmm. than we can consciously think. I mean, if they, sometimes when I'm doing workshops, I give this example of, um, you know, like we live in this beautiful era of cognitive science and science where we've learned more about how the brain works in the last, you know, 15 years than we did in the previous 150 combined. And one like really interesting thing that cognitive scientists have learned is how, how long it takes to think. And apparently the answer is 60 hundredths of a second. That's how long it takes to have a conscious thought. And I think that's fascinating because in Major League Baseball, for example, or I assume in cricket, the average pitched ball arrives at home plate faster than that. 400, four hundredths of a second. And so you could ask this question of like, well then how did, how are some people reliably great at this skill that requires you to act faster than you can think? And I think that's kind of like, when I think of a great footballer, oftentimes what they have to do is react faster than they can think to a stimulus and, you know, and, and uh, faster than other people can think. And I think that what, it, what the research reveals, I think about hitters and baseball is relevant to football as well, which is that, what a great hitter is doing with a fastball that arrives faster than they can think is they're actually reading the perceptive cues from the pitcher before the ball is pitched. And so one, they're looking at rate of uh, angle of arm channel, which is the angle of the arm above the shoulder and rate of hip rotation and rate of shoulder rotation. And so what a cognitive scientist would call this is a perception action linkage, which is one, they're not even aware that they're looking at these things often. And so they can't explain it. They can't say, oh yeah, I was watching the pitcher's shoulders. They just do this out of a habit. Somehow by some miracle, they can talk to look at the right things to make these instantaneous decisions. And by looking at them over and over, they've begun to develop this notion that they don't even know that they have about what pitch is coming. And so Decisions that made at speed are made between this like perception action linkage is what a cognitive scientist would call it. And so to me, I think if I, if I wanted to make a bet on teaching instinct, I would spend a lot of time coaching players' eyes. You know, you can't make a good decision about something you don't see. So thinking about what are players looking at? Are their eyes in the right place? And what are they, you know, what are the cues that they're looking for? Because I would suspect that a player with really, really good instinct has actually really good eyes and is always looking in the right place, probably before <laughs> before the action is required. And so, um, and I think that that's something we often over, like oftentimes when we're coaching players, we might pause and, you know, we're playing 8v8 and we say, pause, boys, we played the ball, you know, what should we do here? And I think that's an interesting question, but maybe a more interesting question is pause, boys, what do you see here? Because right? what I want to develop is their eyes. Oh, we just played the ball under pressure. Great. Right. So what, what are the alternatives here? What do you, you know, look around, what do you see? Where else can you play the ball? Because I think if I want fast decisions and I know those decisions are going to have to be so fast that they skip conscious memory, I'm going to have to train players' eyes so that they're 
you know, expertise, you could define expertise as knowing where to look and knowing what to look for. There maybe even knowing where to look on the consumer than your opponent. I don't know if that can makes I, any sense. Apologies for the long. I, yeah. No, that's really interesting, Doug, because I'll come back in there. So I just say, for example, then talking football specific and, you know, from a player development perspective, we're looking at players who can do those game-changing moments. You know, those are big players, De Bruyne's and Grealish's. So, you know, 1v1's a really big part of my work. I'm just thinking, though, you know, it's how do you then cultivate that? Is it just the case that you put them in those scenarios as much as possible, give those experiences to experience and try to then recognise those cues? Is it just really giving that volume of those situations yes and i think two of so i think yes volume is really important volume volume of, of cue of being in a position where you see the cues is really important and i would want to if i could call your attention to make it more likely that you're looking at the cues and i want to feed your feed your background knowledge so that you understood what you were looking at and more more likely to have your eyes go in rational directions so i think you know like uh, this group of cognitive scientists that i love says you know what you what you see is a product of what you know beforehand what we learn is a product of what you know so background knowledge influences how much you process tim is uh tim has been really strong about advocating for this in u.s soccer circles and then the last thing that i would say you need to perceive quickly is you need all all of your working memory free you know working memory uh is the site at which we process perception and so to your point about um unopposed and skill development if i have to think about use my working memory to execute a piece of skill. That's working memory that I don't have to focus on, on mm. perception. And so what I want is I want to maximize the amount of working memory that is available for perception. And that means automating skills. I was talking to a football coach here in the U S he, he coaches at a top division one program. And he, he was just, we were talking about one of his top midfielders and she's his, she's his best player when she receives the ball at her feet in tight spaces and has to, has to, you know, find an opening to um, make a line breaking pass. She's brilliant. But he was noticing that when she receives the ball in the air, she gives it away. She brings the ball down successfully always when she receives them. Her first touch is great when she receives the ball out of the air, but the next play, the pass is problematic. And what we speculated was happening when we worked on with her was that she was while she was able to receive the ball successfully out of the air, it required her, she had to think about it more than when she received on the ground. And so her working memory was focused on receiving the ball. She could do it, but not with the same level of automaticity. And so then when, when she, while she was receiving, she wasn't scanning and looking in the spaces the same way that she was when she was receiving the ball on the ground. So the one active, one way of receiving the ball was more automatic for her. She had working memory left over to perceive in the other case even though she could execute the skill, she couldn't do it automatically enough to perceive the field as fully. And that was causing her to give the ball away. So yes, I think like lots of quantity of perception uh, and the rich perceptive environment also supplemented by times of more working on automating core skills that I'd be doing in that moment so that I can see more, which I think just goes back to maybe what's emerging on the, as the theme of the call, which is like, there is no one right yeah. way to teach something so complex it's both it's actually it's actually both things and finding the right balance is maybe the answer i, I remember one of the other in your earlier works you talked about well the you know the the importance of drilling particularly for better players because once you drill the automaticity into those techniques then it actually allows higher level thinking and you talked about like you said scanning and getting up so i mean that's the yeah. argument isn't it? if you have those the mechanics to do it then that gives you the option to to play with your head up i suppose 
I read this interview with Johan Cruyff where someone asked him what he, whether he was the best player growing up and what he thought differentiated him from the other top players when they were young. And this is because, you know, like everything Cruyff says, you know, he's, he's, he's a Riddler in some ways and he's not, he, he likes to be challenging and provo- like to be challenging and provocative. But what he said was I had other players had greater skill than I had on the ball, but I had the ability to bring a ball down under control automatically in half a meter of space and they needed a meter to be able to do it comfortably. And so in tight spaces, I was able to, you know, basically like, um, I could do those core things and be looking around and thinking about where I wanted to be next and where the space was going to open up. And I only needed, you know, I, I needed a much smaller space to be able to do that. And they needed more space to be able to think in that way. And that's what I think is the difference between me and a, and a lesser player, but it's um, that automaticity was a big part of perception for him, at least in his understanding of his own game. Interesting. Tim, let's bring you in now, Tim, any, any thoughts on, on this conversation, man, who, I met, I, you know, really taught me the ways of individual technical work, unopposed work, and the quality of ball mastery. Big, big, please, my love. What's your thoughts on this? this, this? I've been up to work with dogs so frequently. We've discussed these things in depth, and every time I'm back on the chalk face, I'm still coaching kids on a regular basis, and I'm talking to my 10 year old girls who are so busy fighting the ball, is the language I use that their ability to get ahead up and make decisions is just the next stage. So this ball mastery piece, so certain behaviours are automated, for me, is just the foundation of kids' ability to make good decisions. So how does that fit into the US soccer play, whole part, whole thing you've got going on, nothing unopposed? It's not that there's nothing unopposed. It's that they, US soccer would say that we identify two methods within our course pathway, but those methods are to meet a player-centered philosophy and to meet certain philosophical tenets, reality-based, etc. But nobody at US Soccer would tell you that the, there's no place for unopposed or, as an example, with our 4v4 course, there's individuals with a ball a lot of the time. Interesting. Because we, we, have, we have a situation here in the moment where coach educators are coming out of the FA and telling that very much, don't do anything unopposed. That's that's the ch- that's the challenging message we get to where we're trying to wonder why there's no there's no balance, why there is the extreme. I think US soccer is seeking the place where coaches are so inspirational that kids go home and do what they did when we were kids and go and kick it against the wall, play with the ball on their own, warm skills, master skills have a love affair with the ball so that this automation can take place. But that obviously relies a lot on the individual skills of the coach. Right. So then what would your advice, advice be as a coach educator? What would your advice be to a young coach coming up? Advice to every coach is, first of all, you've got to make a connection with the kid in front of you. If you can build a connection with the kid, where you show an interest in them as a person and they're much more likely to be inspired by whatever thoughts you're sharing, whatever uh, ball mastery program you're trying to preach. I think it's all as 
comes out of the relationship you've got with them. The kids who I've affected most are the kids who've brought into the fact that, okay, I've got this relationship with Tim. I'd really like, Crystal Dawn was one, I'd really like to impress Tim. Got great respect for him. So she went home and spent hours and hours with a ball on her own. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the exception to the rule, right? I mean, I'm not saying you're not aspiring to every player, obviously, or, or coach, but I mean, most kids aren't going to do that, little Johnny, a little Julie, and, you know, not gonna, they might get one practice a week. So the question to you, you know, you know, how would you structure a practice for a week for, you know, under nines, under, under eights? You know, you've got one hour a week and you want to try and support them into developing those, you know, the technique, but also the importance of having fun and playing the games. And how do you balance all of that and, you know, your approach as a... As a, as, a, as a young coach who maybe is not that experienced and who wants to, you know, support the players? It's really a question based upon what method is best applied. And I think for that conversation to take place, you've got to have a deep understanding of the methods and the context you're going to run practice in. Sometimes I'll get to practice with an 18-yard box. Sometimes I'll get half a field. Sometimes uh, it's a performance practice. So I've got to look at shadow play and gameplay. And blending all those things together in a way that creates the environment that we're talking about, this automation, so that they can perform uh, better decision-making capacity. Ultimately, you've got a load of sessions that begin with a ball each that go through someone opposed, but it's got background noise. So it's not dribbling round cones, it's dribbling where there's players in the way and they're finding space and it's teaching the foundation moves and it's that part of it is always going to be crucial for me. Interesting. Then, then you want to come in here and think? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things there. Some of the stuff that um, Doug was talking about in terms of chaos, I think, you know, this, and, and, and the word chaos and the word Tim used there, connection, I, I think there's this constant competition between things and then nature versus nurture. And I think we've done where before where I said, if I'm honest, I think it's nature plus nurture. For example, if Peter Crouch was always going to be six foot seven, um, there's a reason why he scored 53 out of 106 Premier League goals with his head, and he's the only person that scored more than 50 goals in the Premier League with his head. They clearly maximised his nature. He was never going to be a five foot seven rabbit like Messi or play a certain way, and he's had an incredible career because of it. So that's like the whole nature of nurture thing. And I think the same is with practice. I think I really think it's about balance. The key words are connection and balance. Are we first of all connecting the kids to the ball, like Tim said? This. I don't think there's as many kids as when we grew up that actually love the ball and love football. I think a lot of them, and I'm saying this for working with young kids and college kids and whatever, they love the idea of being a footballer. They love it. They see the rewards and the money and the fame and the adulation. But I just think back to when we were raw street footballers where everybody had a certain level of competency with playing football. You was all pretty good at football. And then the very exceptional ones really were exceptional. Uh, maybe the last breed, like a Wayne Rooney, the stories of him having his Everton debut and then still going and have a kickabout on the streets against the garages in Toxteth. That that raw love for the game, I think, is such an important ingredient with all of this because it doesn't matter what practice they're doing. Like what Tim said, if they're not going away obsessed with the ball, because you know, so even in the elite, so-called elite academies, we don't really have them for long enough. So the, the messages we're leaving them with in terms of uh, linking it to the stuff Doug said about what are they looking at or what are they looking for in the game? And what are we guiding them towards as well? So, yeah, great dribbling, but can you think about doing this with your head? Or can you go home this weekend and don't just watch YouTube, but go and watch Lionel Messi and watch the way, just before he played that pass, tell me what his eyes were doing or whatever it is. We, we've got to be that one that's kind of just steering their love for the game and their passion 
into an obsession but towards the stuff that we know are really relevant and important you know what i mean so i think i think characteristics and traits come into it a hell of a lot as well what characteristics and and that love for the ball that we're really developing in our players as well i think it's really really important let's bring doug back in on that because glenn made some glenn and tim made some really interesting points what's your thoughts then doug and one um teaching learning off the grass learning as a coach but then also what about learning vicariously you know using you know um players and what they're doing as inspiration as good modeling and stuff like that to then inspire those players like tim's players going to go and work by themselves i think that one of the other things i'd be thinking about is if i wanted players to go home and work you know spend a lot of time on the ball and do ball mastering which is probably necessary to be elite and you can't there's a time to do it all in practice I think I'd want to model really carefully in training what I wanted them to do at home. I think it's a big assumption that kids know how to go home and, and spend time on the ball in the most optimal way. <clears throat> I, I know this as, as a relatively failed footballer myself. I spent actually a lot, a lot, a lot of time working on my own. And when I think about what I did on my own, I'm pretty confident that it didn't help much at all. So if I wanted players to young players and particularly go home and train i would probably try and make that linkage a little bit clearer i'd probably try and model some activities during training session and just make it explicit when you go home this is a great activity to do here's something you know the difference between going down to your basement and doing 100 price turns versus going down to your basement and setting up a couple of obstacles and dribbling around them and trying to include some price turns and link your price turns to a couple of other, you know, a couple of other moves is, is probably pretty significant. Um, and it's a big assumption that, you know, A, kids would know how to do that and B, that like part of motivation is if I have a, if I enjoy, if I enjoy doing training. But I also, maybe just one tiny point here, which is I think people misunderstand pleasure. It's a really happiness. I think it's a really strange thing to say. But and I think that they like, oh, if kids just play, they'll be happy. But most of the kids I've known well, and this includes maybe my own kids, find pleasure in being successful at things. And that the more you understand about something, the more you enjoy it. And the more you feel like you're improving, the more you enjoy that. Those are also parts of enjoyment. So I think I just want to be really intentional about modeling in my training sessions. Ten, ten sessions, ten minutes, we're going to work on skill. I'm going to try and make you feel really successful at it and understand some of the things that I'm trying to do and say, you know, when you go home, try and set up try three times a week, try and do this for 10 minutes on your own. And then maybe a little bit of loving accountability, which is, and I'm going to ask you when you come back next week, how many times you played in your own and how you did, you know, and uh, maybe even send me a tiny video if you're working on it at home. So kids feel seen when they do it and when they, and then I could, interestingly, if I did that, I could even be like, yeah, what you're, you know, love to see you working so hard. What you're doing would be a little bit better if you did it this way or that way i think it's one of the you know glenn you were talking about nature versus nurture those things are so hard to unpack but also you know part of the gift that some kids have is they have parents who know a lot about football it's one of the reasons why so many like great footballers or the children of great footballers you can assume that um you know their home doing really productive things with the ball because they've got a dad who really understands the game. And so it's worth also thinking about well, what can we do for the kids who 
don't go home to a dad who dad or mom who really understands the game and how can we help them to be motivated and successful when they you know if we can help them do that and be motivated and successful and see the difference from their training they're more likely to train on their own as well uh, and what about that what about no sorry Daniel, come back in go tim go tim conversation speaks to the depth of the craft so if you think about all the things we've talked about challenge automation cognitive uh ability etc tactical periodization so they don't forget when you come back to things when you do things again which method you employ uh how you inspire this the depth of our craft is so immense that i think many people don't consider it and therefore don't perfect it So then how we how do we you know spark that ignite that fire in people like this where you raise awareness yeah interesting that's a key word there so again i'm i've started thinking about this differently and i'm trying to reach out to people and i'll probably reach out to tim as a terrific coach educator as well since i've got into the coach mentoring and stuff you know we've seen a lot of young people come through the college from 16 to 23 24 and they've all got their own ideas on football but i'm i'm just trying to instill certain coaching values and principles okay what is it you believe in let's go with it then and blah 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 um i just focus on three eyes in terms of what i can give to them and hopefully what we're doing with our players and the words that tim said there as well is inspire ignite and influence and one of the hardest ones is the ignition part. Igniting a child is sometimes apathetic or, I don't know, let's say the, the stereotypical kid that got released from an academy, a bit down in the dumps, you know. It's not always easy, is it? It takes skill as a human being to be able to tap into someone and re-motivate them when they're going from apathy to, like, complete motivation. So, again, some of that, them real tacit skills of coaching are, are really key. And, it, and I always spoke a lot about science and stuff like that, but in my experience... There's a, it's an R in terms of knowing what to say and when to say. I had a wonderful moment last night with one of the young coaches where I, I deliberately tried to capture it. There was a young boy just struggling to get into the session, sitting on the side, crying next to the fence next to my seven years old. And I looked at this kid and I said, and I walked past him and because I was the next person, I said, hello, young man, how are you? Introduced myself and whatever else. Didn't know me, big old grizzly bear like me. So I got down and spoke to him. Took a good five or six minutes and I, I was running out of things to say. It weren't quite working. I couldn't get this kid to join in the session. I've got mum to come home. We found a way, right? We found a way to get this kid to step onto the football pitch. Now, if that kid just continued for the rest of the hour, it's a successful session for that kid, as far as I'm concerned. Someone that's experienced, I think this kid's gone from being terrified to just participate tonight, and everything else is a bonus. There was a wonderful moment, Saul, that I captured, and I made sure the young coaches really took it in. There was another young player on the pitch, seven years old, walked over to him and could see that he was struggling and he put his arm around him and said words along these lines it's okay it's okay i'll help you out and then the kid just stepped forward off the goal line and stepped two steps forward and then a couple of goals went behind and every single time the kid struggled the other child went over and patted him on the back it's okay come on keep going it was just fantastic to watch and i captured it and said to the coach and by the end of that session that same kid was running around like a bunny rabbit didn't even comprehend anything else that was going on the other child partly myself and the other child played a part in just getting them in a place where they're ready to learn and ready to even take part forget learning just just take part and again that that skill in there somewhere of the stuff that you just said about ignite and inspire so that's such a key thing that i'm finding hard to teach other young coaches as well it's almost like you've got captured a moment live do, do you know what i mean I, I don't think it's something you teach i think it's something that you feel when you go through with lots of experiences and 
maybe when they tell you thanks for inspiring me maybe that keeps us going as coaches and i'm looking at tim does that make sense i'm trying to look at it from a coach educator's point of view because i normally immerse myself in the players but i found myself now as a, as trying to be a coach educator that I don't even watch the players. I'm watching the coaches and I'm I'm having to almost coach cam and I'm finding it quite difficult. But I just wanted to share that in terms of capturing a moment that, that might frame something that's useful for coaches, if, if that makes sense. Sorry, I waffled on a little bit there, but right. hopefully it makes sense. It's amount of background knowledge, it's amount of experience you've had that lets you see. It's back to, for me, it's just analogous with the conversation we had about seeing clues picking up things from the environment, you've had enough experience to pick that up and have a method of dealing with it because you've got a background knowledge which allows you to do it. And we wanted to re relay the facts as well and reaffirm at the end of that session to say, we were so impressed with this young boy's behaviour. So for the rest of the group, we frame that behaviour and say, you are a star of the show tonight and, and everyone's going, what for step overs? Isn't it? No, but actually that's wonderful behaviour. That's how we help each other learn. That's how we try and enjoy our football tonight you know, whether we succeed or whatever the skill. So it was actually for the, for the children in terms of developing their behaviour as well. And it was, a, it was a magic little moment and hopefully it will go on for the next few weeks as well. So, Hi guys, hope you're enjoying the show. Just to remind you that the My Personal Football Coach virtual conference is now live. 14 presentations for some of the best player developers in world football. Check out the information in the bio uh, and it's downloadable. You watch, you can keep the presentations for a lifetime. But like I said, some of the best player developers and a lot of the top guests we've had over the years on the, sh on the show and a, and a unique discount, 20% discount code for you guys only. Discount code is podcast VC, V for virtual, C for conference, podcast VC gives you 20% off. But like I say, these are the Carlin Globetrotters of player developers uh, so go and check it out now. But without further ado, let's get back into the show. Yeah. Interesting. Let, let's come, just come back to Doug, really, just now because we were times of yesterday. Just Doug, what, can you talk us a little bit about your work on interventions, different sorts of interventions and how useful they can be? And just run us through. And I've done some work work on this. And there's a bit of like, to give us, you know, just a little bit of a brief outline in terms of this sort of differentiation between them and how powerful they can be and the sorts of different ones. Sure, uh, but by interventions, you mean like uh, yeah, coaching interventions. Yes, yeah. yeah. In terms of how I communicate with the players, in terms of groups and individuals, and and that sort of thing. Yeah, thanks for asking. It's it's kind of it's interesting because I think that, again, like the theme we keep coming back to is the complexity of the job that we do as coaches, not just from a football perspective, but from a human. Just like there's so much to learn, and then there's this layer that Glenn is pointing out with like the human side of you know, it's a very classroom type interaction that you're describing, Glenn. Of, what do you do when someone wants to just opt out of the whole thing and doesn't want to and can't engage productively? And so, um, you know, again, I think the theme of the call, for, <laughs> the theme of the discussion for me is maybe, you know, we oftentimes maybe tacitly encourage people to have like strong philosophical beliefs about this is better or that is better. And I think maybe what I'd encourage people to do is to like, is to think about a portfolio of tools, right? And when each tool is available, only a fool holds a hammer and therefore thinks that everything is a nail. And so one of the, I, I've been thinking about that a lot with like on-field coaching. And so one just interesting activity that I did with a club was we just, I put on the, um, on the screen sort of what I would describe as five most common interventions that I think happen in on-field coaching. And they are, you know, um, one is a stoppage, which is a, a 
you know, we're playing AV and I pause and I say, boys, more of this, less of that. Then the second thing is, um, is what I describe as live coaching, which is like players are playing and I'm shouting things to them. Kevin, get wider, you know, don't play into pressure. Don't play into pressure, Carlos. But the next tool that we talked about is like, is a pullout, which is like the team is still playing and I call a player over and I say, Daniel, when you receive the ball, try to take your first touch away from pressure. Next time you get the ball, see if you can do that go, right? So that's like an individual kind of thing. The next tool that we talked about is like, is a, is like a post set, a post activity debrief, right? Boys, bring it in. What do we learn about um, trying to build out of the back in this session? Or maybe a pre, you could also do that pre-session, right? We're about to build out of the back. What are some things we should be thinking about? And then the last tool that we talked about was a constraint, which is I build something into the activity that is going to try to cause players to play differently, right? We're going to, there are free players in the wide channel. I'm going to try and cause you to play wide. And what I then asked the coaches to do was like, take each of these and talk about, make a list of the sort of, um, the limitations and the opportunities of each of these, right? They all have strengths and weaknesses. When would I want to use them and how could I use them to maximize their benefits and minimize their limitations? Because, you know, all of these things have limitations, right? One of the, like, one of the great things about live coaching, which is calling things out to players while they're playing is that nobody has to stop playing, right? We can keep going. And so if I want to say one thing to one player, you know, 15 other players get to keep going. One of the downsides of it is I need my working memory to be playing football. And so if you're talking to me while I'm playing, I have to choose between listening to you and using my working memory to play. And so um, that can be challenging and there's probably a limit to how much players can process and think about while they're playing. Um, and so we just, I, I think the, no matter what the answers are, like I think the important thing is to be able to come up with both benefits and limitations of any of those five things. And then the next step was just to think a little bit about which of these do I want to use, why and when. And maybe I'll just say that one or two, one thing that I'm particularly passionate about is um, with like, I think stoppages are really effective teaching tools. If there is, I think it's a great opportunity to be perception-based. You know, we were talking about the role of perception and learning. And I think when I do a stoppage, because I think it's one of the most commonly used tools, some of the things I would like to see happen are one, it should be a really fast stoppage. We should talk about one thing and then let players try and use it. And if possible, I should build it off a perceptive cue, which is to ask players what they see, what they observe, what they think they should do, as opposed to my saying, this is what we should do. And then after we start playing, um, I should, so the formula that I've come up, kind of come up with with this for Tim is recreate, right? I want to pause and recreate the scene that we were looking at when the moment happens so that I can process the visual cues. Review, which is I want to teach something or explain something or reinforce something. I love it that you did X. Then rehearse right now, let's play it back in a controlled environment so you can feel what it likes to do it correctly and then restart. And when I say go, we're going to try and play again from live. So if I can do, if I can make one point and recreate review, reverse restart. And I think that stoppage is going to be much more effective with fostering learning. And then if I could do one thing after that, as I, I want to align my live feedback to what I talked about in the stoppage. So if I say, boys, when we're building out of the back, we need to strike the ball at pace, balls need to be on the ground. 
construct. Uh, and ball needs to be moving at pace. So we're moving the opposition quickly from side to side. Then the next thing I want to think about is telling players how they're doing at that and telling them that it's important that they follow through. So yes, Kevin, that's the pace of the ball we want. Hit it harder, Carlos, right? Yes, Daniel, that's what we, so now, now they know whether they're doing the thing that I talked about in the stoppage. And they know that I care and I'm watching to see whether what we, they do, whether we talked about in the stoppage. Lots of times I'll see coaches, they'll make a stoppage, they'll talk about the pace of the ball, building out of the back. And then when they start playing again, they'll talk about everything except that, right? They'll, their shouted comments will be like, get into space, Kevin, better first touch, Carlos. None of that is about pace of the ball. And so tacitly, the message that we risk sending there is that I've forgotten about what I talked about in the stoppage, you know, one minute after we made it. And so there's really no reason why you would be thinking about it afterwards also as a player. Um, so I, I'm not, I hope that's usually, you know, that, that, that comes from a lot of conversations between Tim and I just thinking about um, what it could look, what, it, what basic teaching tools can look like on the field. I hope that's the direction you wanted to go in. Yeah, yeah it's quite interesting because it's a bit like, you know, an experienced coach is a bit like the, you know, the pit, the, the baseball guy who sees the pitch and reading the triggers, right? You, you just, you intervene as you intervene, you know, sometimes you say I'm stopping it. Sometimes I'm talking to players, but for a young coach, do you think so maybe someone who's a bit more of a novice or a little bit, do you think it's important to go and say, right, <laughs> I'm going to have this many stops, this many of these ones, I'm going to vary what I do. And you think it's almost like you've got a checklist. How, how, how difficult is that for a young coach to do is to go into that mindset and I want to have a varied know some varied interventions and I want to this many of these this many of these or should I just try and read what I see well I think it, I think it's really the analogy you're drawing is really interesting which is coaching is a lot like playing the game right I'm, I'm reading perceptive cues and making decisions based on the environment and the, the expertise is really like whether I make the right decisions based on what I'm observing but I do think that one of the risks is that I, I only develop a couple of those skills and then I start to believe that those are the only relevant skills. So I, you know, I don't believe in stoppages, so I never do stoppages and all I do is live coaching. Um, you know, the next step for me is to come up with a rationalization, which is we should never do stoppages. We should only do live coaching because I just think that I would want to push myself to try to use to try to use all the different tools and develop proficiency at the tools before I decided which tools I believed in. Right? I think that for a lot of people, like the belief comes first, but I would say try to master all the tools before you decide which ones are best and when, um, because uh, look, it's, 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 a, it's stressful and can be you know scary to like standing up in front of a, group of boys and it, or girls, and it doesn't feel good to do a stoppage that you know is a disaster. Uh, it doesn't feel good to um, get yourself in a position where you're angry at your players because they're not doing what you're asking them to do. And so there is always an incentive to not do, not use tools that you don't feel like you have mastery of. And then I think the next step when you when you don't use something because you don't have mastery of it, the next step is to rationalize some better reason for why you don't use it. So I guess if I had to say, over time, all of us as teachers develop a set of tacit beliefs about what we think works, but strive to master the skills before you decide that they work or don't work. And then you're making a decision based on, on a well-executed skill as opposed to deciding early on in the process, this works, this doesn't, and I'm not gonna spend any time trying to do um the following things 
Yeah, kind of Tim, I'll bring you in there, Tim. Just what do you think then? Because um, maybe that was because I think uh, Doug was, you know, had an inkling towards that. I mean, if I'm an experienced coach, then how do I improve my interventions? We maybe do have, you know, everyone, everyone has confirmation bias in how they coach, they've been approached right away. How maybe do I check what, I'm, what I'm, my innovations and how to improve that? If I especially my experienced coach and I've got one way of coaching. Connected skills. You have to, as Doug was alluding to, teach them the whole toolkit, as we call it flow, individual reference, but you also have to link in knowledge on flow mostly will improve performance. There's no thinking and no learning impacted in that. They're just following the command. Part of a young coach figuring out which tool to use is their observation skills. Have they just stood the kids, kids still for five minutes? Is it freezing minus 20? And I'm probably not going to use a freeze. So there's a whole background knowledge in addition to the skill set player observation understanding the learning in front of you is young Tim a kid who I'm better talking to individually pulling him out and modeling a shape or is young Tim I can kid I kid I can just say I can paint the picture with words all those nuances of which tool to use obviously the background piece of about which tool you try at which point in time what, what about, for example, you know, I'm doing a session, I've got one of the parents at the back. So do you mind, could you like, you know, make a note of all the interventions I make or something like that? Just to, you know, I'm thinking about off the top of my head, if I'm in a grassroots situation, if I'm a coach or an experienced coach, what I want to improve, right? So I need to understand what interventions I'm making and that counts. And at the end, I can say, well, wow, I made, you know, 10 stoppages here and only made one with the game or stuff. I'm just, you know, thinking out loud here. Is that, do you think that would be useful to really sort of like reflect? I mean, if I make obviously filming the game would be like filming my session would be the ideal. If I can't film it and record the mic, is it would that be sort of a thing to say, right? You know, reflect as a coach there? Yeah, the stages would be video if you can, observer that you trust if you can. Then you've got things like the old bouncer clicks. Yeah. You click and that sort of give you a count of how many times I've stopped it, if stoppages are what you're recording. So teaching them skillful self-reflection. Is a piece of it, but all those things combined hopefully give you a true picture of the stoppages and the tools you're using as you try and teach every kid. I think the big, biggest challenge for most youth coaches, certainly the beginning ones, is am I coaching every kid? I've got 12 there. I spoke to two of them today. So it's which information and which data is most crucial for you mm -hmm. to collect in your point of your learning trajectory as a coach? Can I throw two more tools that I think are useful for self-reflection? Because I think it's really important. Love the idea of videotaping. Love the idea of having an observer. Um, I think also everyone's got a phone. You could audio tape yourself. You know, just put your phone in your pocket with audio tape on and listen to yourself making a stoppage or listen to yourself for five minutes of live feedback. Don't try and tape the whole thing. Just choose one thing. And, uh, you know, I think that can give you a lot of data. I also think a stopwatch is a really, really powerful tool, right? Um, you know, one of the first thing, one of, I have a great video of a coach. He just, he walks out to do a little stoppage. And the first thing he does is click the stopwatch because he's timing how long he wants to talk to the players for, right? And like, uh, or um, how long, you know, or alternatively, how long we play between stoppages. And then I can sort of, I can tie that data to my intuition, which is, wow, the session felt really great today. I made half as many stoppages as I made, you know, previously. So uh, I think there's lots of opportunities for you know data gathering, just using your uh, using using stopwatch, 
tabulating things on your phone and maybe doing some audio tape if you can't get video if you can't get video that can also help interesting and just i'm before i bring glenn back in sorry glenn i'm just dominating no the mic here. but just mic. just uh, talk a little bit about differentiation obviously that's another educational term obviously in my experience in the classroom and the challenge was almost you time maybe sometimes you know you're also you're either you're focusing on the players of the, the who need the extra support or the players who need stretching and a lot of the players the children in the classroom often get missed behind stuff that's always a challenge in it with when you're working in the classroom Talk a bit about in, the, in a coaching setting, and obviously it's different in academy football because we talk about generally trying to help the, the best, and then the, the rest have got us. So they know it's almost like sink or swim. But obviously in grassroots, you know we've got such a big, varying mixture of, of abilities there. How, so some advice there for coaches with that? Yeah, I'll steal one piece of advice from Tim, which I think it's really important just to track how many play, what percentage of the players you're talking to, right? The temptation is to talk to the players who are most responsive to your feedback and who appear to use it best and most successfully. And so just being diligent about making sure that you're interacting with everyone. Um, but I think a, a second thing that's maybe more hidden is how often we talk to players using words that they don't understand. And so if I wanna make sure that I'm, strangely one form of, if one, tool to differentiate is to standardize or make vocabulary more consistent. Watching a match at a, my daughter's football tournament last year and the coach is shouting at the outside back, stay connected, stay connected. You know, she's one of the weaker players on the field. Watching her, I'm confident she has no idea what stay connected means. Stay connected to what, how. Um, she remained disconnected and the other team scored. And then, you know, um, and so this is not a recipe for meeting, meeting that kid. And I think it starts with coach using vocabulary term that he has not bothered to define and explain to kids and have them have a clear picture of it. And so he's talking to her, but he's not talking to her, if you know what I mean. And I think that that happens over and over and over again. Like if you just listen to the phrases that coaches say to players, they don't really have any basis for presuming that the players understand. You know, talking past someone is a great way to make them feel disconnected from the endeavor and to allow ourselves to not be able to. We don't differentiate for kids in part because we haven't standardized vocabulary. So for me, one of the most powerful, single, simple things that a club can do is just make a shared vocabulary list. These are the phrases and these are the terms that we're going to use to describe the game of football and we're going to make sure that everybody understands them. One more tiny story about my daughter. She played for, she played for a really good club, uh, and, but she had, at one point, the club hadn't really standardized vocabulary and she had one coach who talked to her about receiving the ball in the half turn and another coach who talked to her about receiving the ball side on and she never recognized it or took her a long time to recognize that those are the same thing and that everything she'd learned about the half turn also applied to receiving side on and how much more she would have connected those experiences if they had simply been using the same phrase and so maybe that's a strange argument but i think standardizing vocabulary is a really important tool for differentiating or at least connecting with every student every player uh, in a way that they understand. And then, you know, I think that's kind of the starting, talking to people in a way that they understand is a starting point of differentiation. Yeah, it's interesting because all, all clubs have their own sort of standardised language. I remember when I moved from Tottenham to Chelsea, at, at Tottenham we always talked about balance, which basically means head up, are we balanced, you know, height, width and depth, mainly defender, we got someone at the back defending. So when I started at Chelsea, I started using the word balance, balance with the teams I was coaching, they all understood, but the coaches were like, 
what's this balance? You know, and there's different languages of them, and they were a bit almost like, you know, what's and they and then some they they actually said to me, well, we need to introduce this language to everybody, so everybody's on like they say the same page because you know you can't have some players uh, know some of it's quite interesting. But Glenn, let me bring Glenn back in. I think Glenn you want to come back in. That's fascinating. Like terminology and stuff like that but the interventions things fascinating for me as well and affirmations going back to what doug said really early on about happiness and stuff a lot of children as well don't just want to practice on their own because they want to be acknowledged and they want again just going back to last night you know a, a child done a wonderful thing and the first person looked over is it dad dad did you see that goal and they want to be affirmed so a really important message doug said there and, and, and tim said intentionally catch kids doing things good and, and and make sure that it is every child every child does matter whether it's a child that you're helping with his behaviour or a child that you're helping just take part in the session or you're helping the absolute whiz kid improve instead of taking on one player, you want him to be really brave and go one versus three, whatever it is, whatever part you're stretching and challenging. I think it's really, really important. I know, I know we keep saying this word a lot, so, but to really keep individualising your interventions. Individualise every interaction that you have. What I say to Johnny is different to what I need to say to Joey or Sam or, or or the poorly behaved or whatever you want to name it. It is what it is. I've got to challenge his behaviour. So I'm going to be talking to him or managing or keep me on his behaviour tonight because until he gets that right, um, it's, it's fascinating. Last thing for me in terms of feedback as well, I find it really good to use. And I'm trying to encourage the young coaches. What you all said there a minute ago about when we've done coaching courses, I, I felt, I felt, I can speak myself, that when I was very young, I'd done my level to certain anyway, I felt like I was saying what the coach educator wanted to hear. And I was saying what everybody else on the course put me under pressure to hear. Make sure you get your technical detail out and this and that. 20 odd years on, I'm saying what I believe I need to, not what I want to, what I need to at the time. And sometimes even if we don't say it, so let the children give the feedback at the end. Don't obsess about us saying it. Give every, ask everyone opinion. Um, did anyone notice something good tonight? What do you think Johnny done tonight? And they'll all put their hands up and they will say, if when another child says, if little Joey says to Johnny, I thought your passing was brilliant tonight. Well, if I was going to say the same thing, in my opinion, it's just much more powerful. Like the other child I said earlier, hugging the other child. Because I actually said to the mum at the time, I said, look, this is why coaches don't need to interfere so much. If I went and put my arm around a child or said, come on, and tried to boost them up, it would have had less effect than the child doing it to each other. So I think sometimes allowing players to give feedback is is really really important as well so lovely now look i know you know, dizzy doug I'll just briefly gives people like where they can find out more information you and give you a nice big plug for your amazing book as well please oh that's so nice of you thank you uh so um i'm on twitter at uh at uh at doug underscore lamav and the book is called the coach's guide to teaching and you can get it hopefully you buy it from your independent bookseller but you can also get it through amazon and uh and various other places so um Really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for having me on. Yeah, look, thanks very much. Thanks, Glenn, and thanks, Tim. Tim, by the way, you look a bit like God there with that white background and white hair, but it's, it's quite ironic actually because it is kind of impressive, God, isn't it? it? <laughs> yeah. I wish, I wish everyone, yeah, very, just, very godly like it. Bring back memories of him shouting at me when I used to misbehave in uh, Long Island, but many another, another subject for another day. Thanks very much, Doug. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate it. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.